This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Lupașcu, one of the hosts for the New Books in East Asian Studies channel. Today, we are here with Dr. Ziwei Xiao, Associate Professor of Modern Languages and Literatures, Chinese to be specific, at Fairfield University. Welcome, Dr. Xiao. How are you today? Thank you for inviting me, Victoria. This is a great opportunity for me to, you know, talk about my book with you. Thank you. The pleasure. It's all, it's all mine. And I'm absolutely sure our listeners um, would have the same uh, response. Um, thank you for agreeing again to talk to us about your new book, Telling Details, Chinese Fiction, Word Literature, published by Routledge in 2020. And I would want to start, uh, as usual, by getting to know you and your work better. So could you please tell us how you came to this project? You know, what got you interested in reading for details and their visual capacity in Chinese literature? Um, this book has been years in the making. Um, my interest in the detail or details uh, goes back to my very early years um, as a um, fiction re- reader uh, and then a movie viewer. So, you know, uh, not really as a literary or film scholar. Um, I was often puzzled by the fact that I could only remember certain details in a story or movie. And then I forgot the whole plot. And um, what also intrigues me is that this is a little bit like in my own life. I sometimes remember vividly certain details that happened to me in the past. But then I forgot the context or uh, the reason, the cause of things. Um, I, I've always been fascinated by this correlation between details in literature, in cinema, and details in memory. Um, I think I think this is what I believe. Fiction writers knew that they could exploit this mnemonic, this memory, and ultimately this temporal dimension of the reading process. Uh, to achieve certain effects. If they, they use details in a certain way, they could evoke our own memory, our own imagination. So, um, and I also noticed that um, people tend to think that this mnemonic and temporal development is about plotting or storytelling. But what intrigues me uh, is that writers of xiaoshuo or the novel details uh, take advantage of our memory, our perceptual capacity as readers to achieve their effects. Details, so I argue in my book, play a crucial role in evoking a dynamic recognition and engagement from us readers. Um, of course, readers do not always, I mean, writers do not always succeed in engaging readers through details. So sometimes um, the communication between a writer and reader through this medium of details may well just break up 
especially uh, you know if a writer is too subtle or too vague. So, um, I, I was you know sometimes fascinated that some writers um, of Xijie uh, Xiaoshuo regards this potential loss uh, with a with a good degree of nonchalance. Uh, the readers could get it. That's great, but if they don't. Um, then I I don't want to help you with you know the the you know all this subtlety teaching you how to read or how to recognize this. So you know uh, I I was just very interested uh, in trying to figure out um, you know the workings of details. Uh, Eileen Chang once lamented that Chinese readers have lost the capacity to read between lines. I think he, she meant a read. The details uh, between lines, uh, but I wonder if there was ever a time that these subtle details and minutia got the full attention of popular readers. Uh, a page-turning novel or action-packed film are always the preferred narrative modes that most people go for. Uh, I myself have always been deeply interested in these works that run on details, that are driven by details, so to speak. So in any case, um, writing this book gave me an opportunity to explore something that I've always been curious about first as a reader. And my initial idea was very simple. I would just do some case studies of some authors who are known for having this special talent in working with details. I wanted to learn how they use details in their novels. Um, before I developed a very clear idea of this overall structure of my book, right, the serialization of the detail and then six case studies, I had already written quite a little bit about Shen Tsongwen and Eileen Cha, these two um, authors that I dealt with in chapter, uh, chapter three and four. Uh, sorry, four and five. I was um, intrigued by how um, they shared a certain interest in using these concrete details to turn these little bits and pieces of everyday life into something sensuous, half real, half fantasmal, something that strikes the right balance between fiction and life. So um, the articles that I published set up a very good foundation for my book. Um, the, the one thing that I learned, I also noticed very early on, is that in their works, uh, I, I, I just said a little bit about this, but I noticed that how precise details can actually suggest something that's, impre that's imprecise, that's vague, that's intangible. Um, so Shen, Tongwen, and Chang Eileen Chang, both take details beyond um, the, the normal descriptive and rhetorical functions, beyond their assigned supporting roles to embellish and illustrate uh, to, a, to a higher level, I think. So these are some of the initial things. Um, just to sum up, I guess, in the beginning, I don't have any theory about the detail or the novel of details, uh, I just knew that I had to think deep into the text and go from there. So, 
I hope I answered your question. Sure. And that's fascinating. And I, I, I truly admire this type of work, um, especially because I believe it takes a certain type of discipline and patience to um, to read into the text and stay with the text um, to discover it and you know to to have this patience for the lack of a better word to read between the lines and um, construct this type of, of reading um, so I, I I really enjoyed the book and I really enjoyed this type of, of, of work um, that we, we totally see in, in the book that and the both um, the main parts, there are two main parts, and they describe uh, this type of work, and they are accompanied by the introduction and the afterword. And in the introduction, we find that, uh, and I'll quote here, that a detail is an unseen knot or a fold that connects fabric and feeling outside and inside performer and audience. And a detail is an intermediary, a medium. It is neither objective nor subjective. End of quote. And this is quite exciting, in my opinion. And with the definition, the introduction tells us that this book is about detail, about its Chinese counterpart, Sijie, about a detail-driven poetic that poetics that has become a major form of realist expression in both traditional and modern Chinese texts, and about how, as a literary idiom and critical concept, the detail can animate our discussion about Chinese fiction and world literature. Um, we read that on page one, and that was a longer quote. So uh, we read more about the the Xijie Xiaoshuo, and um, this is where I want to place my question specifically. Um, and I'll ask, what is the Xijie Xiaoshuo, and what does the work details do for Chinese fiction and its relation to world literature? Um, and just from you know my own curiosity, when do details become telling? Thank you for citing those words uh, in my preface. Um, uh, let me answer your question, just you know, giving you some of my thoughts instead of giving you a direct answer. I think um, that would be too dry. Um, writing about the detail is such a rewarding and illuminating process for me. One thing is that the questions about the detail are never simply about literature or literary texts. What attracts me to this project is a correspondence between life and literature, as I said at the beginning. What I've learned in life feeds back into what I'm writing and vice versa. I think one reason is that the novel of details or Xijie Xiaoshuo addresses some of the most basic questions. What is reality? What is, um, you know, real life? I'm quite suspicious, you know, as a literary critic that about a certain kind of theory, uh, actually um, given by one very famous author. I, I don't really want to name this author, but she just basically claimed that details can be fabricated and used as a building blocks to create something entirely fictional. I think it is a very dangerous thought and act, but this has already been done. I mean, uh, she writes such novels this way. Um, what interests me about Xijie Xiaoshuo is not how well the details are arranged to create certain effects of reality, but how writers really, you know, are inspired by life and model their fiction on real life and try to, I mean, model doesn't really just mean 
that, you know, formally uh, you match your fiction with real life. But they really aim to bring out the complexity and ambiguity, of course, of our life, of our experience through this detail-rich open form. I regard Xiaoshuo as an uh, open field. He also gives you details, just, you know, like our life is full of details. But do you always know the purpose and the intention of things? Not really. Uh, of course, uh, maybe Xiaoshuo authors have a better idea about what they are going to, um, what their intention is. But he or she doesn't really tell you uh, exactly the intention, the purpose. So it's an open form. It's democratic form in a way. Um, I think it's a very also uh, uh, exactly subtle way of approaching the world as it is. Um, the world is complex. You know, things are connected. Um, so, and also for me, one of the, the, the wonderful discovery in delving deeper into the text is that this aesthetic emphasis on the minute also has a you know ethical dimension. Uh, when I trace the semantics of xi jie, uh, I found that in Chinese, uh, xi jie is both a very old word and a new word. Uh, it is a repurposing of the, an old word. What I mean is that Xi uh, jie in Chinese has many different other ways, other names. It can also mean the minute and humble. So it's Xi Wei. Wei can mean uh, a, a, a humble person. So this aesthetic emphasis on the minute and humble uh, for me is, is very important because, uh, you know, in all the case studies that I have, all these authors are giving attention to uh, so-called xi jie. It, they, they could be things, and they could also be people. People and things look small, seemingly inconsequential, and very humble in the big picture or in the big scheme of things. Let me answer your last question. What is a telling detail first uh, before we move on to what this notion of xi jie xiaoshuo could do for a Chinese literary canon and word literature? Uh, what makes a detail telling is a question that I've asked myself from the very beginning. To understand this, we have to return to the intermediary function of the detail in xi jie xiaoshuo. So your quote from my this just reminded me of this epiphany that I had at this no work store uh, in Kyoto many years ago in 2014 when the no master gave me the answer or the reason why do you go through this hours long dressing ritual every day so strictly why do you wear this inner garment with all these knots and folds uh, knowing that they're not supposed to be seen because you have to put an outer garment over it. And his answer was really intriguing. He said that the, the details gave him a purchase on a role he was playing. So basically, uh, psychologically preparing him for the role he's going to perform. And I realized that details in literature can function in very 
much the same way. They're neither subjective nor objective, but rather they connect, they mediate, or you could use the word negotiate uh, between the two. In a novel, details can play on this dialectic between the visible and invisible, sound and silence, to transmit feelings and emotions, to create lyricism or irony. But the most important thing, perhaps, is that a detailing detail is a detail recognized and grasped by the reader. A detail becomes most meaningful when a reader notices it and responds to it because it sparks their own imagination and memory. A detail does not, or a telling detail does not always mean that it's beautiful, it is shining, luminous, like coordinates of a constellation. It can be all of this, but it can also just refer to a, a, a mute and humble one. Xijie小说 demands our active engagement. So um, I think in most cases, it also means a slow reading experience. Uh, and sometimes a detail becomes telling only after you reread things. Uh, the term Xijie小说 was there already before I borrowed it for my own use. It had been used as a loose term to refer to any detail-rich narrative fiction. But I used this familiar but fuzzy term to categorize a string of narratives in which details exceed their conventional supporting roles, so much so that they become the drivers of the novel. They decenter the plot. They form the core interest of the text. They become telling. Because, you know, through them, you can see the dynamics of seeing and hearing of the characters. You can also discern the mind of the characters that vibrates with the world outside. And I think a telling detail also um, makes the imperative very clear that you need to recognize the minute, the humble, and the hidden. I think... A detail-centric form, like Xijie小说, can throw light on a very important dimension of Chinese realist novel in representing the concreteness and opacities in our feelings, memories, and other intangible experiences, including our interpersonal social interactions. There are things that are unsaid or unspoken. And uh, the conventional idea about Chinese literature is that uh, so this is my uh, answer to your question. What what does it do for uh, the the Chinese canon, the the, the fiction, the national canon? Uh, the idea is that Chinese literature's best form, best genre, the strengths is lyrical poetry. Traditionally, Chinese the Chinese novel is a genre that does not get the respect uh, if we compare that with. Uh, Poetry. Uh, people think the Chinese novel are didactic and unrefined, and some of its masterpieces are also incomplete, like The Dream of the Red Chamber. So by proposing that we do have this very refined fictional tradition, I was not trying to rewrite Chinese literary history. 
I do think there is, however, this bias against the Chinese novelist tra- tradition, uh, so much so that people, including both Chinese and Western scholars, all think that modern Chinese fiction is an imported form, a Western structure that holds the Chinese materials that has nothing to do with its own literary tradition. So even though um, my book or my study is not thorough, tracing this development um, of Xijie Xiaoshuo in China, I hope I hope could generate some new ideas and new pathways for future studies of Chinese fiction. So my, um, just to answer your question about what literature, from the title you can tell that the other structure and theoretical component of my book is this, you know, uh, the term what literature. I wouldn't have read Chinese fiction, Chinese details, and Chinese literary modernity the way I did in this book if I stayed in this designated field of modern Chinese literature or uh, this framework of national canon. Um, but what literature for me personally is never a fashionable term that I want to you know, just get people's attention. It is really when I compare things, compare details, compare writers, when I place Chinese fiction in this larger context of world literature that certain features previously unnoticed or taken for granted in Chinese fiction stand out. And uh, I think this is this comparative perspective, the advantage of doing this is not my invention, of course. Uh, I just follow the, you know, uh, I'm a comparatist. My PhD is in comparative literature. So um, just one last word about what literature. Um, in this book, what literature is understood as both works that circle beyond their culture of origin and thrive in the international literary system through translation. That's David Damarash's definition. Uh, or what literature are those that transcend their cultural linguistic origin through surpassing their contemporary horizon of expectations during their own time and often resists translatability. This is Martin Kern's definition. Um, About 10 years ago, I began to participate in various conferences discussing what what literature could do for Chinese literature, Chinese fiction especially. I felt very excited that something new could come out of this effort to Resituate, or I shouldn't say resituate, uh, situate Chinese literature in this larger uh, literary and cultural context. I was convinced that not only can this very expensive view and methodology stimulate a deeper understanding about Chinese fiction and its native tradition, but the latter could also contribute to a more nuanced way about literary modernity in the larger world historical context. I also put a comma in the secondary title of this book, Chinese Fiction Word Literature, rather than using the prepositional words such as as or in. Uh, so it's not Chinese fiction as word literature or Chinese fiction in word literature. 
I hope this punctuation mark could uh, convey certain ambiguity that I felt surrounding the thoughts and ideas about their relationship. So uh, in my own case, putting this undefined juxtaposition in the title is my way to indicate two conflicting critical impulses behind the writing of this book. On the one hand, I want to use the detail as a key concept, critical concept, and a literary medium to bring Chinese fiction and world literature together or closer. So I highlight some of the connections, similarities, and common worldly dimensions. But on the other hand, I also hope to use my analysis of Chinese text to to insist on the value of difficulty, alterity, and localize the particularity embodied by Xiaoshuo. I want the challenge of this high translatability of the global novel to be uh, a part of my book. Um, Let's see, what else? Um, I think, yeah, do I answer all your questions? I think so. Um, And I think um, the last part, um, the last few minutes, I think brought us very nicely into the question about theoretical framework. So, um, yeah, I think it was a, a very um, well-rounded answer to, to the first uh, question. Um, and, you know, I would uh, just continue, right, by saying that uh, part one, detail and difference, lays out the theoretical framework in three ways, as you, you mentioned on page five. Uh, quote, by describing the key features of Xijie Xiaoshuo, by examining the meanings and uses of the detail in traditional Chinese thought and modern critical discourse, and by placing the Xijie Xiaoshuo in world literature. And in this, I was very curious about details functioning as intermediaries, um, as uh, you, you mentioned on page 12. And you already uh, spoke a little bit about this, but you know I wanted to to emphasize this a bit, um, specifically this role that details have as intermediaries between the perceiving subject and perceived object in the novels. And furthermore, I was wondering whether you could walk us through the three approaches as well as their intersection intersections and independent developments. Um. This this could be a very uh, large question, but I want to uh, bring in the my own study of cinema because cinema is another source of I wouldn't say theoretical meaning, but it does teach me how to read a novel. I mean, read. I sometimes use the word you know watch, right? Uh, I'm I feel like. Sometimes, as so many details, it takes on a dimension. But I feel like I could, you know, just like watch a film, I could go deep into uh, a to to see how it works. And you just sum up this um, this intermediary really well that you can see not only the seeing object, but you also, I mean, you mean a reader also notices the same subject. So 
the detail functions in that way. It, it, this is a really kind of very subtle, right? We we're more used to stories as you know told from a person. Uh, so the subject has to be there. We are more used to that. So when you are reading uh, without the subject, you should be careful. So these are not just objects that are naturally there. Uh, often, the reason why they are there is because the author wants you to see that this is what the person has seen. I mean, the, you know, the, the detail can, again, can be a thing and can be a person. So once you notice that, you know, the details have this function that can, you know, make you see both parties, then I think it achieves certain, what I would call perceptual objectivity, because it gives you both parties. Um, so it's neither subjective nor objective. Uh, that's, that's about, that's one of the most important uh, feature about detail in Xijie小说. Um, uh, I want readers to approach my book um, you know, with their different levels of knowledge about Chinese fiction uh, and with different interests. So that's how and why I structure my book that way. Uh, people who are interested, more interested in the theory part, they could just read you know, the, my, my introduction and the first part, uh, the, the detail and difference. But people who are more interested in analysis, the more you know, close reading of the of the the specific stories, they can also use that, uh, and they don't really need to have much of a background. I actually read this or write this book uh, for my students. Uh, this, you know, came from my teaching experience when I was teaching Chinese fiction. One of the frustration that I had is that I often felt like I need to fill in the blanks. Students do not have the knowledge about Chinese history. I have to tell them what happened in the background. Uh, they soon lost interest. They think that this is not a literature class. This is a history class. But I'm not trained as a historian. I'm trained as a literary scholar. So how to, how to make my students uh, you know, interested in exploring a literary text become my task? not as a teacher, uh, but also as a scholar. Um, so my teaching of literature kind of feeds my um, scholarly interest. So my six chapters, case studies, are written that way, um, accessible and um, um, close reading, and very detailed, of course. I was actually thinking about uh, about teaching when I was uh, I was reading the book, and I thought this will make a wonderfully, you know, um, wonderful uh, teaching material as well. Because as you said, it's it's accessible, and um, 
I think it's it's difficult to introduce students who would take Chinese literature courses as optional um, to be interested in in what we think it's it's very very important, um, or you know to dwell delve deeper into the history of um, of literature or history of the novel or you know even the personal history of a particular author. So um, yes, teaching was on my mind as well. <laughs> Thank you for mentioning. Um, and uh, I think uh, for for part two, right, fiction uh, of details, um, with this title, uh, we are brought under its. Uh, we are brought to the six cases that you mentioned, uh, and that um, um, closely analyze the tradition and the modern development of Xiao Shuo. And in the first, in the first chapter in this part entitled In the Realm of the Senses, Looking into uh, Jinping Mei. The analysis focuses on the details themselves, searching to find their epistemological contours, as well as their in-betweenness. Also, there are visual dimensions to details uh, that need to be underlined here, and this was a great, um, great aspect that I, I really I was breathtaking by, just thinking of the visual dimensions um, and the possibility to analyze them. And with this in mind, um, I was wondering whether you could uh, expand a little the premises here and the internal mechanics through which details and their visuality create a textual op- openness. Okay. Um, from, er- from very early on, commentators of Jinping Mei have turned to details to try to find a key to unlock the intricate structure, the figurative patterns and symbolic meanings, as well as the true intention of its anonymous author. I benefited from all these interpretations in these readings. I also realized that we could approach the details in this novel with a different purpose or different set of questions. What if the details are not aimed at teaching you or teaching readers a lesson to edify you, to serve a large purpose? What if the details themselves matter so much so that readers who carefully read them would have to figure out their own answers? And um, there probably is no one single conflict or problem to solve. No one single thesis to to convey, to demonstrate, and on um, the reader's part to understand. So, Jinping has done something quite radical and new. If we take the point of view of take the lens of the details, scholars of Jinping may have said a lot about how great this novel is. But to me, it has a uh, even greater significance if we place it in the wor- world context of literary history. This is the first novel that takes a profound interest in everyday life. And more than that, used every day as the basic model for the novel without making it boring. And somebody said in, in, in some place, I remember, he said it's quite difficult to make a adventure story interesting Right? But it, it's not as difficult if you take on the subject of everyday life. How do you make this humdrum stuff interesting? 
That's the challenge. So the novelty of this novel um, does not focus on something readers have never experienced, right? As I said, like a hero's adventure or a legendary tale, uh, something that, you know, marvelous, strange. Rather, it gives readers what they experience already in everyday life. Yet, with fictional characters playing out the complexity of this, um, details in Jinping Mei are particularly interesting interesting to me, not just because, um, as some some critics or scholars have, you know, done in their thesis, that this author plays the word games, word games, and created so many different patterns. What interests me is that, or what I think is great, is that he is so good at hanging this visible the invisible, the concrete, and intangible imbalance. I would also argue that the details in this novel are so lively because um, I'm sure that you already knew that, that they are often presented through you know, this scene. The author is able to make us see both the thing and the person. And details are crucial to this novel because if you take take them out, there's nothing left. And they paint the surface and the depth of the novel. They give pleasures, yet they also create an internal critique. They establish this realist framing as well as ethical boundaries. And up, you know, above all, their visuality creates this reflexivity and a textual openness as as mentioned um and of course i really appreciate appreciate this neutral way of just you know arrange these details without telling you um and letting you the reader figuring out um i think he you know my guess that he is so in tune to this play between the seen and unseen might have something to do with his profession in theater. That's why in the afterword, um, I made this conjecture that, you know, the, the, the best candidate that one can, you know, um, give, I mean, because this anonymous also has set off so many guesses. So my guess is he is Tang Xianzu. Um, he is probably the best candidate for this author, um, for, for this reason. Uh, this is, of course, one reason. Uh, back to uh, my answer to your question, more you know, um, relevant. Uh, about, I also want to talk a little bit about um, its depiction of sex. Scholars tell us the sex scenes uh, often presented in a voyeuristic way, but there is also a flip side to this author's flaunting of the sex scenes. When he introduces these minor characters, the servants, maids, and even their children, you know, the peeping toms of the underclass or the lower class people, 
they also participate in the pleasure, um, of course, in a vicarious way. There is an extreme deficit of pleasure and this unbidden distribution of it among the master, the concubines, and their servants. The author does not concentrate on the surface, that is, the spectacle of the sex, to satisfy readers, which is what pornography does. Right? And it has this bad reputation of being a pornographical novel. His eyes are on other things, on the narrative logic, but also on these marginal characters, on seeing and spectating itself, on the consequences of these voyeurs being not only denied access to pleasure, but also the basic humanity. Um, my discussion of the abuses and the rebellion of Tiuju, the maidservant of Pan Jinglian, you know, this, this evil woman uh, in this novel, provides such an example. I hope um, readers can enjoy that part. And I myself think I, you know, I wrote the best in that section. And of course, um, by throwing light on minor characters, I am not claiming that Jinkimei is the first proletarian novel. Definitely not. It never takes a political position on victims and members of this servant class. And there is no novel, noble characters that can lift up this very dark and gloomy vision of the society. Um, but as readers and critics, we have to be clear that, you know, the details in this novel are never equal to objects, to things themselves. Even when this novel seems to be so invested in the sensuous details to create this splendid fictional surface, it also always wants you to see beneath it, beneath this glitter and sheen, to grasp the truth. I think this is, you know, you can say this is a very dark novel, but it's a very truthful novel to me. So I want to use a section in my book to say a little bit more about this visuality of details. Um, I can quote this section. Um, I talked about jewelries, I talk about lanterns, I talk about these little things that shimmer between the real and illusory, between object and sign, and they titter to slip into a void. I notice, you know, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the part that's most mes mesmerizing, and I still couldn't figure out why the author puts in that particular section in the novel is um, this mirror polisher, the old beggar polishing all the mirrors of these concubines. I think mm -hmm. that that episode is the most illuminous and enigmatic scenes in the novel. And it's still very mysterious. I, I want to study more. And I uh, and it, it just, I feel like I didn't really get the full meaning out of it that is just fascinating. And of course, uh, one of the main character, Li Pingar, uh, the favorite concubine of Xi Mengqing, um, you know, 
her name indicates that you know, she's a precious vase. She's she's that vase she holds, she carries to Simon's family on her wedding day. And I think it's um, not just a detail of the late Ming wedding ritual. Her birth and namesake are both related to vase. Does it symbolize vagina or womb? I think this very earthy woman, a temptress turned good wife and loving mother, she is the most emblematic figure in this novel. The, the very famous commentator Zhang Zhupo points out, Li Pingar is the one that carries 100 Western Ocean pearls, like Xiyang Da Zhu, from her previous life in Water Margin, signifying the literary origin of this 100-chapter novel. I think this is a great comment. These precious pearls are never described in detail, but only get glanced at in the text, phosphorescently appearing in chapter 20 on the wedding day and disappearing until the last chapter of the book. These pearls serve as the phantasmal index to Jinping Mei, the novel itself. And I call it a gem in a gem, a fiction in a fiction. So Jinping Mei, you know, people talk about objects in this book, right? This is um, kind of merchant's paradise. You know, everything has a value. People speak in the language of money, of things. Uh, on, one, on the other hand, it has this, you know, what I described, this, this almost surreal kind of dimension, the phantasmal dimension of it. I think the author is highly conscious of the potential of the novel, uh, that is, its fictionality, its indexing to uh, something that is not concretely, physically real. So Jinping Mei as an abitum of the novel, the genre that began to flourish in late 16th century China. Um, we all know it, it, it comes from Water Martin. It borrows its characters, borrows its one episode. It's a spin-off, but it deviates from this predecessor. It's ambivalence towards the worldly appearance and acts of seeming. To me, really registers a larger cultural cultural anxiety over the loss of authenticity. So we can see how it is, you know, obsessed with objects, obsessed with super, you know, superficial services, obsessed with material luxury. It also, however, stresses the need to penetrate, right, using your eyes to see what's not lies underneath. If we read this book, you know, all these history books about late mean society, it is quite obvious to us that Jinping Mei is revealing of the confusion of pleasure, which late mean luxury consumption and growth of materialism really brought about. This is a social historical phenomenon um, but Jinping Mei really replies or responds to this, this hist historical question in its fictional way. Right, so. 
Let me stop here. <laughs> it's fascinating, and I, I'm just you know very happy to to sit sit quietly and to listen. Um, but uh, it, I, I absolutely agree that it um, it engages with the the time of its if it's writing in a very um, um, very well and organic even way that leaves us with a lot of questions, um, and I think that might be a characteristic of main of other texts in the subsequent chapters as well, right? For example, in chapter two, um, entitled Seeing is Remembering Zhang Tai's Rhapsodic Texts and Modern Chinese Lyrical Fiction, um, we see the the role details play in the lyrical mode of Si Jie Xiao Shuo and the ways in which Zhang's writing demonstrates how pro- prose can be written like poetry can become poetry by focusing on the perceptual, on seeing. Uh, and that was a quote from page 75. So what's more, um, and I, I'm not very sure if I got this right, but um, I I was reading that uh, Zhou Zoran theorized that Zhang's work re- works represented the genre of Xiaoping, uh, Xiaoping Wen, uh, a new model of prose. Um, so I'm not sure if I understood that correct from the book, but you know, I wanted to, to ask you about it. And um, I thought that the chapter challenges this claim, and I would love to hear more about this debate, about Zhang's work, and the pivotal role details played here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure that we could call it a debate. Maybe I misunderstood, but in the 1930s, I think Joe Gordon understands, or I should use past tense, understood the novelty of Zhang's prose writing and relevance to the new fiction that he is promoting, this uh, lyrical fiction. Um, and I think he, he perceives that uh, the, the strength, the newness of Zhang's writing, or Xiaoping Wen, is, is already, although it's written in classical language, it already makes in the vernacular and things from real life from real speech. So the, the hybrid text really interests, I mean, hybrid dimension of his text interests him. Um, and I think Joe is absolutely right to, to see the, the potential of this hybrid literary form um, because, you know, his, his thought is about this, uh, how, how do you reform uh, the Chinese literature uh, his thoughts is that, or his his idea about lyrical fiction is actually inspired by traditional Chinese prose as well as the Western essays. He wrote about both. Uh, Zhou Zuoren is is really kind of um, engrossed by this potential, uh, this in between form, something uh, that is. You can call it fiction. You can also call it essay. Something you know, formatically uh, swinging between these two. Uh, so he thinks that fiction doesn't have to be written in a certain way. It doesn't have to be you know written in a dramatic way, theatrical way. It can be essayistic. It can have this open-endedness, uh, or I would call it. It can be plotless just like life is. So 
I think that's uh, that's his appreciation of Zhang Dai's uh, Xiaoping Wen. Um, another thing about Zhang Dai that I think attracts, appeals to um, Zhou Zorin is his attention to the humble details of everyday life, to both their truth value and to to its you know poetic potential. We can we can see how this atheistic quality, this belief in the value of everyday, are really bringing Chinese lyrical fiction closer to some of the basic premises of Western modernism. I would quote Eric Obach's observation, and he was talking about modern realism as exemplified by Proust and uh, Virginia Woolf. He observes how these 20th century novels or 20th century Western novels shift their emphasis from the great exterior to everyday occurrence, which really reflects a great confidence. That's That's what his words are. The confidence that in any random fragment plugged from the course of a life at any time the totality of its fate is contained and can be portrayed. And uh, when I was reading um, Proust's novel, La Recherche du Temps Perdu, Proust also wrote about this change of art making. Uh, he was talking about painting, actually, in his novel, this shift from something grandeur to something really normal, uh, very everyday, mundane. Um, so that's what uh, you know. What happens to in Zhang uh, Tai's essay that attracts Zhou Duoren. Now, if you go back to Zhang Dai, you can see his profound interest in this aesthetic potential. So he write about events and non-events in his most important work. Or essay collections, uh, dream memories, or Taoanmengyi. Some of the things that he writes about look fantastically ordinary, and you can also say ordinarily fantastic. And um, in a letter to his playwright friend, Yuan Yuling, Zhang Dai criticized his friend's um, deployment of the strange and fantastical. Uh, in his Chi or Southern Style plays, he begs him to consider everyday life. So everyday life has a lot to offer, despite its blendness. It can also also always be made refreshing and long-lasting. He really believes in that. And in his own work, including dream memories, John you know, practice what he preached. So um, now I, I also want to just mention, you know, the, this comparison of his work with, you know, other so-called splendor dreaming tradition works. So those who are nostalgic about the past using this, you know, the, 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 the trope of dream and memory, uh, the most typical one, uh, a much earlier text, Meng Yuanlao's Dream of Splendor, 
they use that as a model and they compare his work to uh, Mo Yuanlao's work. But if you take a deeper look at these two texts, you will find Mo Yuanlao's book is written almost exclusively in a descriptive mode, not a narrative mode. So most of the time, the reader cannot feel the presence of an individual narrator, nor can we be certain of this exact time of the memory and observation. So this book has tremendous historical anthropological value, yet it lost its appeal as a literary text for modern readers. We're so removed from his time. It is a cold document, although it is full of details. So, you know, when we use the word details, we or uh, these different texts made of details can really teach us what is so distinguished or distinctive about the Xiaoshuo we talk about. So Zhang Dai's essay, but although, you know, uh, it's not fiction, but still we can make a case. This collection of essays based on his experience, based on his life, uh, are tending towards a larger autobiographical novel, if you, you know, look at them as a whole. Zhang Dai's essays, by contrast, can speak directly to us, to modern Chinese readers, presuming that they have some basic knowledge of classical Chinese, because I mean, this is my understanding. The most important reason why we can relate to his work is because he offers us primarily uh, his experience, not facts, not presumed facts. So uh, in reading his book, you can see most of his reports and stories are written from this I subject Although you know he doesn't always uh, emphasize that this, but you know it's very clear it's written from this individualized point of view, so he can take us with him to the main streets, into the crowd. He can show us the splendid moments of festivals, and um, we you know we can travel with him. We can see all these sordid affairs and very very troubling scenes. He has he has witnessed, and he also confesses to us his hobbies, his fears, cravings, obsessions, and uh, a very interesting, very humane part of his writing is he talks about this unexpected encounters. Really interesting, right? It's very common also with friends and with strangers alike. Um, so just to if I can just you know recap, one reason why Zhang Dai's text is so lively, uh, it's not a dead text, is because he can evoke the past not as it was, but as it was experienced, which means as it was tasted, heard, felt, smelled, and above all seen. So even though he sometimes just gave you details, you are aware that there is this. I subject. There's this person behind the details. So in reading his Xiaoping one, we're touched not by the facts of the past, by but by um, I would quote, quote myself, this reverberations in the sights and sounds. 
that have been sifted and lifted through dreams and memories. So I think it's this individualization of you know this experience that makes his um, writings so interesting and so um, capable of bringing us uh, you know closer to him. So yeah, that's my very long answer to your question. Oh, it's fascinating, and I absolutely agree that um, with this bringing the reader. Uh, into um, experiencing, right? Um, although it's it's a few hundred years later, um, what the um, what the narrator uh, experienced at the time and describing a society, describing a specific time um, of a day or um, of a period, um, so vividly, I would say. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating and. Um, you know, of course, it depends on on each author's style. But I also thought that the the sing song girls of Shanghai also did uh, an interesting uh, job at uh, at describing a particular time. And uh, this is uh, what chapter three entitled "Silent Strangers and Strange Silence: The Edge and the Center of the Sing Song Girls of Shanghai" uh, takes us closer to, although it is. Uh, coming closer to the 21st century and um, uh, brings to light the sing-song girls of Shanghai status as a modern fiction from the vantage point of the detail as a simultaneous aesthetic and ethical uh, stance. So, um, you know, as, as with the other questions, I was curious to know more about how details work in uh, Han Bangting's fiction and what kind of aesthetic path do they build? Um, because that here becomes a bit more more clear in that sense, the aesthetic path than maybe in, in the others. Um, I was not sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, I hope I can answer this question in two ways. Uh, it depends on how you define what a detail is. Um, I start this chapter by describing two minor characters meeting for the second time. So the man remembers their previous brief encounter and the woman doesn't. These two characters are, you know, basically unsympathetic characters. Uh, the man is a loafer, basically living on the income of his courtesan sister, and the other is a servant girl, girl who works in brothels. So the marriage, in the end, is more out of convenience, access, rather than, you know, you know, any romantic feelings uh, or novel uh, motivations, nothing. So, but the story or their story frames this novel. These two appears at the beginning and the end. And they are, these two, and as well as many other maid servant characters, these are the humble details or xi uh, wei again, the Chinese term for uh, a detail that emerges in this very large narrative. And um, I think these minor characters, struggle and survival in the city, form the shadow of this main narrative. It's the obverse side of Sing Song Girls of Shanghai. So uh, the obvious, of course, is 
be these beautiful, talented singsong girls、um, and their patrons. Not every singsong girl is、uh, is a is a good woman, right? But these are the more attractive part of the novel. But there's also this underside of the novel. I think the author deliberately gives you these two sides. Or you can call it also two lines.、Uh, I argue in this book that、uh, the stories of these underclass characters are by no means digressions, comic relief, or only just、uh, side glances. But they are crucial components of this tremendous novel, which I think it really aims at、uh, complexity. And also structural integrity.、Uh, the way Han Han Bangqing places these characters on the narrative edges, right? They are not always in the front, but on the edges.、Uh, it's not, of course, entirely new because in more or earlier texts of Xijie Xiaoshuo, we can also see how authors create this rippling and resonating effects by. Uh, you know, by by using these small characters to bring out、um, the major currents of the novel,、uh, I also see the influence of Jin Pimei on on Singsong Girls of Shanghai. And I can, you know, if 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 you delve deep into the the, the details, you can also see how the author even emulates the earlier novel in specific details. And I. Probably shouldn't go into that,、uh, but you know,、um, I I can also also just、um, say one thing that is the 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 sound effects of this novel is is amazing.、Um, I hope the listeners, if you're interested in this novel,、uh, you should、uh, listen carefully. I mean, this is kind of a, a, a interesting way of saying that, but. The the you know the audible and the inaudible, the silence and sound, and how this author plays with the dynamics between these binaries are really interesting.、Uh, now back to the you know the your question, this ethical aspect. So, in in, in at least two scenes, you can. See how the main characters、um, are actually listening to the cries from the underdog courtesan and from a female servant. Their cries are inaudible; you can totally ignore them. But Han Bangqing always like to、uh, to make things a little bit murky because the listener,、uh, the sympathetic listener, is not. A sympathetic character. This is a middleman character. His name is Benevolence Hong.、Uh, he's always seeing and hearing, and by describing his sympathy to these,、uh, you know,、um, the inferior characters, the maid, and this again, this underdog courtesan, you can see that, you know, that this character is not as bad as he is. Um, you know, because、uh, in other places he can be very hypocritical, 
you can be very cunning, but in these other occasions, you can really see how genuine his feelings are. So uh, what I mean is Hamanjing likes to give you these ambiguous characters um, to show you that, you know, the different facets of a person, basically. Uh, but on the other, uh, you know, at the same time, I, I also want to point out, you know, his description or the sympathy of the characters to others are also described in a haphazard way. Um, there's lots of ellipses, uh, which I think probably is necessary because maybe the the writer himself uh, does not have the, you know, or we can say he, he has a limited knowledge about really the life of the servant class and their trouble. But he is you know, intelligent enough to to notice, to recognize the significance um, or you know the importance of these people, their existence, um, not just at the aesthetic level, but also at the ethical level. Um, now, back to the question about aesthetics and ethics um, at the formal level. Uh, I want to emphasize how Han can use the aesthetics of details uh, to really bring out his subtlety and sophistication, uh, especially probably in structuring and organizing the details. Um, he talks about this four-prong method, chuan cha chang shen, right? Interweaving, inserting, hiding, and averting. And uh, what makes his method so modern is he focuses almost exclusively on their effects on readers. And he said, instead of offering you a whole story up in front in lump sum, he said, I could give you a smaller dosage of things, right? Smaller stories that are often incomplete, random even, and directionless. And then I gave you or folding a dozen of them into a whole piece. And he also emphasized this internal continuity across the plot, across these mini scenes. Uh, and um, it's, it's really kind of, I mean, to me, it's fascinating that uh, an author is so highly conscious of the importance of integrity of them. The narrative, and again, it's bringing all these different, this diverse group of characters, including the lower class people, into the picture. So his vision is really broad, and his uh, sense of reality is really you know, very complex. He, he sees the complexity uh, in the society that he lives in, uh, and he uses this aesthetics of detail to give you or to show you these subtlety and complexity. He does, he does. And um, it's it's very interesting to see the time he devotes in the narrative um, to um, making space uh, for, for these characters that are not, as you said, um, 
coming from, um, you know, the elite uh, class or, you know, coming from particular um, uh, contexts. Um, but, um, you know, I, I also thought that he dedicates a lot of effort um, and is conscientious about these these roles. So I think it's it's a very important uh, work, but also conversation to have about this, uh, the the. the I don't want to say trend, but the way that he um, he thought right about the power of literature and details um, with uh, with his work, um, and um, I would um, I would also ask. Uh, speaking of time, right, um, chapter number four uh, entitled "Fragments of Time Fiction of uh, Details: Eileen Chongli Style and World Literature." With, with this chapter, we are ushered into the world of Eileen Chang with amazing grace and care, I thought. And I will rely on your own questions to start the conversation about this chapter, um, as I'm afraid to disrupt the perfect balance here. So um, I'll quote from page 128, the question that you asked. Um, so how do we view Chang's modernism as both stylistic and social at both stylistic and social levels? And how do we place her as a modern writer in world literature? End of quote. It, it, it is actually not so easy to answer this question about uh, Eileen Chow's modernism in one interview, perhaps. But I think, <clears throat> again, <clears throat> um, in Chow's case, now, um, it is not he, he she is not inventing something entirely new uh, but you know the the, the meaning a very crucial definition of modernism is not inventing something entirely new but making the old new um, for for a long time we, we think Eileen Chang is a lone genius who really stylishly creates this you know, you know, totally new, remarkable modern fiction. We, we, I mean, in China, of course. Uh, we also tend to separate her roles as a creative writer, a critic, a translator. But when we go into the ground level, the depth of his text, texts, uh, we can see that Xijie小说 novels she was exposed to as a reader and as a translator for example, he's you know he's a translator of uh, the Sing Song Ghost of Shanghai, the novel we just talked about. You know, he, his experience of or his exposure to these traditional Xijie小说 must have a huge impact on her. Um, and there's this great mixture of things she absorbed from traditional Xijie小说 and what she learned from modern Western fiction, as well as the visual art, including the cinema. So uh, I want to highlight three points about her modernism, if we, or modernity. Um, Chang's focus on stirrings and struggle within the characters, first thing. I think she knew that she does not want to follow the, this Western way of depicting the psychological state by going directly into it. She learned from traditional Xijie小说 that she could write about the inside by staying on the outside, and she could use the perceptual details, the details 
from the observation to connect the two. And I, I, I really believe that Xijie小说 uh, is a powerful um, form to show not just you know, the, the external factors that conditioned ethical choices, but it is powerful in that way because it can really show that real struggle taking place within the subject in a very detailed way. Um, it can achieve this ethical effect because of its aesthetics. That is to say, not through any exposition of abstract ideas, but through giving you this full complexity of the circumstances and through engaging your imagination, telling you or letting you see what is at stake in this most concrete ethical situation. So this is also perhaps why uh, her fiction sometimes or many Xiaoshu could look ethically ambiguous to impatient, untrained, or ideological eyes. So in the book, I gave the example about the ending of Eileen Chang's very, or now very famous story, Lost Caution, this 1978 short story. At the end, we all know it's female protagonist in this very nervous, nerve-wracking, um, but also very subtle moment of confusion and compassion. Um, she makes this fatal mistake that not only costs her own life, but also aborts the mission of assassination she and others are charged with. Writing Chang focuses on this main character, on Wang Jiaju, her hypersensitive seeing and noticing. You know, in the end, you almost she's almost exclusively describing what she sees, what she notices. By doing so, Chang brings us close to a character's consciousness that not stays within, but vibrates with this changing situation. And she also brings us very, very close to the character's conflicted feelings towards the man. Because of this detailing, so we can follow this minute by minute, you know, this hesitation, this equivocation, taking place inside her. It puts everything on a, on a tight string until the last moment it snaps. Um, we know in the end she blurs out the warning to her enemy. So beneath this surface story as a spy, I mean, it's a spy story, right? We find a thrilling psychological, ethical drama or dilemma. Um, and I find it deeply kind of intimate, secretive, and enigmatic, something that you cannot really pinpoint. Uh, Child's depiction of the woman who buckles under pressure and let go of the enemy has been taken very badly for political reasons. Um, but I, I think Chan is here really dealing with a very tricky situation by exposing the subtle fissure, uh, subtle ethical fissure. Okay. Um, now, so the woman become, I mean, the, this is probably my reading, people can argue with me, 
I think the, this female character, the woman, becomes a real human by letting go of her enemy and choosing her own death. Why the man is a beast, and he always behaves that way, right? He is a beast. A woman succumbs to her own humanity. Here, I think it's demonstrated as a as a weakness. Um, you know, her humanity also includes her attraction to the man, his power, and perhaps his his sex. You can criticize her for all these weakness. A charm makes it also very ambiguous, so that you cannot really tell, you know, whether she's fully you know, sane uh, in that moment because she's so nervous. She might just, you know, make the wrong choice. But I still think, uh, you know, this ethical decision to letting go of her enemy really makes her not a traitor. But a real human being. Um, that's my interpretation. And um, Chan does it through the, the its very small moments, uh, the diamond ring and all that. Um, but we can also understand detail um, by how do I say? By seeing that it is a temporal process. It's a process of time. She makes that decision, perhaps because of the pressure. But you know, the story also gives a long explanation, uh, of course, in a very subtle way, why she makes that decision, why she is hesitating. Right? Uh, she really falls in love with this man, uh, or becomes attracted to the man. And I, I think Ali's um, adaptation emphasized that part. Uh, this. You know, they're, they're falling in love with that offers uh, the rationale for her irrational uh, choice. Uh, in general, I think Chang's awareness of the aesthetics and ethics of ambiguity um, and the particular challenge and the plight that women are faced with, I think it's tremendous. Uh, this attention to what women has to grapple with. This is, I think, this is part of her modernism. Um, part of the reason why she can be so easily, you know, grouped into or read in the context of world literature. She's really kind of can be compared uh, with any strong writers of world literature. Another thing I want to say about her innovation of traditional because we're, we're talking about Modernism, right, making old new, uh, can be seen in her focus or in her uh, writing about ordinary life and everyday characters. Eileen um, Chan has been known for her stories about the middle class, right, the China's relatively affluent, urbanized, living in uh, cosmopolitan cities like Shanghai and Hong Kong, not really the lower class. But made characters, we talked about made characters, uh, you know, the people who float on the, the fringe of, of the novel in uh, Sing Song Girls of Shanghai. You can see in one of, I think, the most underappreciated gems is, you know, this short story, 1944 story, 
steamed osmanthus flower, Asia, laments autumn. Yeah, uh, I think this, this is a, a really important story. Uh, the main characters in the story, the main character, Asia, you can compare her with the other one that we actually just mentioned, Acha. You know, even the names sound similar. Um, what I think uh, she, she did something new is that it is, you know, the story is one of those very rare modern Chinese stories that gives a psychologically complex leading role to a maid, to a migrant from the countryside. Now, Qiao, right, the other main character in Han Bangqing's novel, uh, is also a migrant from the countryside. But in that big novel, she is, you know, again, she is a minor character. Here, in the short story, uh, in Chang's short story, Xiao is Ama, employed by this Caucasian bachelor living in Shanghai's apartment during World War II. She is the real kind of female heroine. Uh, in this modern city. Um, but she's also this composite character uh, of the maids in Sinsang Girl. So we can see the shadows of these maids from this predecessor. Um, so uh, I think this, this is the second thing she does uh, really well. Um, and um, I, I, my interpretation of Xiao is that she is this epitome of her feminist imagination of the xiwei or the minute and the humble. And what I really appreciate is that, is that Chang uses free indirect speech to let us see Asia's very fluid consciousness, which reflects not her own individual struggle, but also the larger collective plight of the lower class women. You, also in this short story, in this very kind of short, narrow space in terms of the narrative length uh, and space, it's, it's small in, in scale, but also you can see how well she does by making Xiao connect with other maidservants to really give you a group you know, character portrait, we would say. So uh, in Sinsang Girls, we have 100 chapters. No, not sorry, 64 chapters. It's a long novel. But we only have maybe a dozen pages. And then you also have this group picture. Uh, it, it's, it's also taking place within 24 hours. Uh, and another um, fascinating part is that uh, characters like Xiao are, you know, in the, in the novel, are constantly observing things. She's seeing things, she's thinking about things. So it's all like, you know, her, her, her subjectivity is just so prominently centralized in this character through her seeing, seeing through her hearing, through her sensing of the world. Uh, there is this, you know, I, I think it's fascinating. Um, so my, my conclusion is that this attention to these characters as 
the minute and the humble, uh, is neither just an aesthetic truth nor an ethical expressions. It's both. It's at once, um, and uh, you know, the aesthetic and the ethic converge and coincide. And the best Xijie Xiaoshuo is almost always ethical, I would say, uh, because it gains its critiquing power from its aesthetic strength. Um, uh, I can keep going <laughs> by talking about the, the the minor characters and the, this, um, you know. We can also uh, go back to Cao Xueqing, right? The other uh, author that really influenced uh, Eileen Chang. Um, like for 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 Cao Xueqing, the maid character or this lowly character, such as Granny Liu Liu Lao Lao, is um, not just one part of the whole picture. She is actually an agent that intervenes. A device for him, for the author, Chronicle, that's the name, to select and organize this, you know, tremendous amount of materials. And she's also in a perspective. So that's what I also want to say, uh, the function of the detail, the, the, the humble woman in Eileen Chow's novel. So this is also a part that makes her work really kind of modern, I think. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Up here. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think um, I definitely it's a it's a plurivalent type of work that brings up questions about right time and sensorial ex- uh, experimentation of um, whatever is described. Um, and of course, you know, we can't um, go further without saying it's it's beautifully uh, put on page. Um, and I think that's uh, that's also what brought uh, the the fascination of many scholars and, and many people with Eileen uh, Chang's uh, work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Can I just add sure. one thing that's really quite important? That yeah. is um, her insistence on the use of authentic details, which I think for many people might sound really strange. What what is authentic details? Um, uh, now, in, afterward, I think I, I mentioned that uh, Chang frequently correspond or writes with the exchange letters with uh, Stephen Song uh, and his wife through the International Air, Air Mail. And when she was writing, you know, this story we just mentioned, the last caution, she tried. She really tried to get the details as historically accurate as possible. Um, it really kind of amazes me. And uh, the other day I was reading Marcel Proust's correspondence. I see how this hunting for the authentic details is also so important for his own writing. And you can't beat Proust if you talk about modernism. So I was wondering why you know the, the authenticity of details is so important. And I have been thinking about why I, I find it both aesthetically and ethically repulsive that some writers can really think they can just manipulate details to make details look like real things to, you know, to write a story to satisfy their own ideological kind of um, uh, goal. Uh, I find this kind of fall realism really repulsive. 
uh, in many ways. Uh, but you know, to 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 really uh, think that this obsession with details is from is coming from this blind reverence for veracity probably is wrong. I think she understands uh, that she doesn't want the reality effect uh, because she she said uh, once that uh, quoting Mark Twain's very famous saying, truth is stranger than fiction. And she said that this is because there are always numerous related and mutating factors that shape the outcomes of a real thing, why a fiction only have a limited amount of choices, you know, just a few possibilities. So if you can get the details right, the reader can feel it, can feel what is internally right. And to use a very kind of interesting uh, phrase, a term, it, it can hear the ring of truths, this faint yet powerful resonance of the real. I find this fascinating. Absolutely agree. Yeah, and it's uh, and especially right the the last quote of of the this powerful uh, ring of truth. Right, it's it's very um, marking. I would say, um, and I think we can extend it as well to to Shang Tsung Wan's uh, work. Um, to um, so for chapter five entitled "From Border Town to the Frontier of the Mind." Shen Tsung's passage to the world. Um, here we engage with different aspects of Shen's writing and life in order to uncover underexplored areas and work through his audacity as well as delicacy in exploring the literary frontiers in modern fiction writing. And that was a quote from page 154. So uh, would it be possible to hear more about the play between audacity and delicacy in uh, Shen's work and life as well? Mm. Uh, if you if you have seen the photos of Shen Songwen in his early, very early life, um, and then his middle age, and then his later years, you would probably see immediately how different he looked. At <laughs> of course, we all look very different at the different stages of our life. But what I mean is that um, um, I was really struck by how fearless and a bit rough he looked as a young man and how entirely defenselessly nice even meek he just looks like an old granny <laughs> uh, very very sweet so when you cited my words about how he played between audacity and delicacy these images really flowed in front of me so I think a reader who goes for details in some of his best fiction could feel this his audacity, uh, part of his audacity comes from his knowledge about darkness and death. And I, I, I just want to maybe digress a little bit because this reminds me of uh, the last author that we're going to talk about, Jia um, um, Pinghua. Um, I, you know, I'm one of his friends. I met him three times and he looked like a totally kind of just a normal guy, you know, very meek, tender, probably. Uh, but when you read his novel, you cannot just match the novel with the person. You know, this, this again, this word audacity, this tenaciousness, 
is there in the language. So there is an inner, I, I would feel, I would say, is an inner strength in this man that make them able to look like daringly into the dark places. I think that's the audacity. In back to Shenzhen, Shenzhen's audacity, I think, comes from his deep knowledge about the darkness and death from his own witness, a witnessing of the killings that or numerous killings um, when he was young and when he was very actually very little, and when he marched in the uh, the the west, southwest frontier areas uh, as a child soldier. So that dark memory in the wild west burdened him, burdened his mind. This is his own words. It just you know pushed heavily on his mind, consciousness. Uh, even when he tried to really kind of capture the beauty that he had seen in that uh, harsh military life, but she also sees beauty in that. Um, Shen was a very sensitive person and a very subtle writer. I think that's where his delicacy come from. Um, but he, um, he, he, he really loved Western Hunan, his hometown, and the native people living there. You can, you can really feel it when, when you read his stories. In some, uh, I mean, back to delicacy, uh, as a as a quality, in some of his most famous pastoral, like I mean, really pastoral lyrical stories, you can hear his voice uh, that imitates a young girl, imitates a young girl's voice, perspective, her imagine, you know, just his his imagination of uh, this feminine experience. Especially the you know the the girls who are coming to age, um, I think he chose this perspective, this voice, because of the innocence and uh, and perhaps also because of this affinity for this female experience or feminine experience. Um, and I think he also talks about his his um, his almost like a reverence for the river spirits. It is supple, it flows, it goes to different places, it endures, and it has a strength. It has a really kind of soft but lasting strength. In some of his fiction, which reads actually like essays, we can see how his attraction to the water renders a fluidity to his text. So like, you know, I, I would also say, like other Xizie Xiaoshu writers, his attention to sensuous details gives gives his text a delicacy, but precisely because of this delicate, subtle qualities of his prose, as well as this pastoral peace and quiet of the country life, one is often shocked, staggered by the violence that suddenly erupts, suddenly jumps out like a beast under the bush. Um, now, how do we understand this? We can probably also you know, understand this from his point of view as an insider, outsider uh, of the life that he is writing about. 
Shen Tong Wang has been considered as the founding father of local color fiction and native soy fiction. Um, we shouldn't be surprised how violence and deaths are part of it, just as pastoralism is. And local colors or literary regionalism uh, often indicates a geographical or cultural constancy, but this should not prevent us from seeing change, seeing this, actually the centrality of change in his work. Uh, Raymond Williams, when he talks about Thomas Hardy, uh, he emphasized that change is what is missing from the criticism of Thomas Hardy as a regional novelist and as a last voice of the old rural civilization. This can also apply to Shen Songwen. The theme of change is important to almost all of Shen Songwen's essential works. And what surprises me uh, is that his insight into the rural reality. When I was reading his last known stories such as Fengzi, and Rainbow Bridge, Hongqiao. Uh, these stories are written in 1930s and 1940s. Uh, in these stories, Shen uses the characters' dialogues and commentaries to speak about his very dark thoughts about the future of rural China. He basically thinks the economy will really break the peasant class. And in the preface to his most lyrical fiction, Border Town, Bian Chen, Shen Songwen suggests that the peace and honesty of the rural life he depicted in his fiction was already lost in reality at the time of his writing. So his return trips to West Hunan hometown in 1930, early 1930s, I think it's 1933 or 1934, uh, and later in 1938, so it's 1930s, uh, really turned his regional fiction towards a more harsher kind of picture of the reality. So Jeffrey Kinkley once points out that telling the story about this region, this West Hunan's slide towards social violence and anarchy um, was the final goal Shen Songwen set himself as a regional writer. So uh, when we talk about audacity, we have to understand you know, his deep knowledge as an insider about this breaking up uh, within this or under this pastoral picture uh, that seems very nice from the outside, from the far. Yeah, so, um, and I, I could give you more examples uh, from um, stories such as uh, I, I highly recommend the story. Um, the, have you read the story before? Guishen, a 1937 story? No, I have not, but it's on my list now. <laughs> yeah, uh, the story, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think, you know, because I'm a phone person, I immediately discerned how visual uh, or how Shen Songwen is a visual person. He, he vividly uh, wants us to see that there is this anger, this sexual jealousy that's brewing, kind of you know, boiling up 
but he's also giving us this whole process uh, using this small details. And I n- notice this, this visual details in Huishen also because um, of the South Korean uh, film called Burning. In this film, uh, especially towards the end, when you see the uh, this big bonfire that burns the car, that really kind of shocks everybody uh, as the main character stabs the other person. A very shockingly violent scene. Uh, it's it's almost like a match uh, with the double bonfire in Shenzhen's Guishen story. Uh, but for the almost the entire time, you don't see the violence. You only see this kind of visual cues. Like here you see a fire, but this is a group of people of the community. They're, they're, they're having this bonfire. And then you see Guishen who can dance uh, this, you know, the, the dragon dance using this red flame-like kind of, you know, decorations. Uh, so he, he just puts here and there um, and, and I, I find that this visual sense of Shantolin really fascinating. And I talked about how he resists the adaptation um, in the social realist style, and he prefers a more kind of modern um, adaptation. Like uh, you know, he suggested when other people want to adapt his short stories, he suggested that they use the Italian way of uh, a collection of short stories, the omnibus uh, film, the anthology film, which I, I, I was kind of really surprised that, you know, at the time Shinsong-Lun already stopped writing, but he was still kind of keeping up with the, the modern way of doing things, a very artistic. Um, so anyway, I, I probably digressed. Um, no, no, it's all fascinating, and it's it's quite curious why he would use that, um, yeah, that approach in a way. But um, yes, yeah, so, I think I can give you the answer. This is all my guess because he all, also thinks highly of himself. He is not writing a social realist story; he is writing a modern story, and I do believe in that. And you, you definitely can can see how you know how both old and new his story is. Uh, now, uh, talking about the old, his attention to the details such as uh, the knife or the sickle, the forest, the river or the brook, the fire and earth, all five things. These are the traditional cosmological elements, the elemental forces, right? Sickle is metal, forest is wood, brook is water, fire and earth. So. He's he still has some kind of very quaint, like traditional Chinese way of looking at the world. On the other hand, uh, he is uh, really kind of using his his uh, visual imagination to tell a, a really interesting story. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> well, you know, I am going to follow up with another question. So. Yeah. Um. On uh, on chapter six, uh, entitled "The Untranslatable Novel," as were literature, Jiaping wants mountains and seas. Um, and I hear, I, I think here, um, 
this chapter draws together more explicitly the connections between, uh, you know, uh, what all the other chapters did and the relations, cultural or otherwise, between writers analyzed so far. So as you mentioned, there are influences that go between Shen Tongwen, Eileen Chang, uh, and Jia Pinghua, and, and others as well. And the latter stands out through his style um, as he, uh, quote, uses details to thicken textuality, to render perceptual objectivity, and to create spatialized interconnectedness and simultaneity. End of quote, and that was from uh, page 172. And he is difficult to place within the bounds of world literature. And I was wondering whether we could hear more about this difficulty and whether that had anything to do with uh, Jia Pinghua's use of details. Hmm. Um, yeah, the difficulty. <laughs> uh, that's also, you know, uh, I mean, for, for some people, his novels are difficult, but. Uh, I wouldn't say uh, everybody feels that way. Uh, for me, it's you know I, I can I can see how different his novel is, uh, but you know it's it's not that difficult. Uh, now back to what literature. Um, many people when they talk about what literature, they would probably cite David Demarage's definition, uh, his shift of definition of what literature from a quantitative and static notion, right? It's not a body of literature of the whole world, but he moves it to a qualitative and a mobile one. So his definition is that what literature encompasses all literary works that circulate beyond their cultural origin, either in translation or in their original language. So I ask what kind of novel after leaving the cultural origin would travel fast and travel far? Uh, an easy answer would be the most mobile literary novels are those that have already become global literary brands and could be easily localized through translation. Salman Rushdie, J.M. Koizi are two names. Haruki Murakami is another example. His fiction has not only been widely translated, but also adapted into prominent works of world cinema. We all know this Drive My Car, right? We just uh, have seen. But, you know, his other novels are also adapted. Among Chinese writers, uh, relatively speaking, compared with Jia Pinghua, Yu Hua and Mo Yan also owe their overseas recognition to the multilingual translations, and of course, John Emo's films. Um, I would also just indirectly answer this question first through details. Um, for authors who write for multiple regions of readers, with this consciousness of translatability, the detail poses a dilemma. Details can make a connection but they can also become a barrier. So we know that writers who aim to reach an international audience sometimes try to avoid certain details, the local details, or what they deem as untranslatable details uh, that could create certain cultural-specific clutter or impediments, like names, like particular cultural allusions, um, actually, 
one complaint about Murakami's novels is that they are sometimes, or you know, in translation, I, I don't read Japanese, so uh, I depend on others, the more um, authoritative critics to judge. But one complaint is that his novels are often too shiny and too smooth. They're free of wrinkles, of oddities, basically. The details are there, but they don't have um, the significance associated with linguistic, geographical differences, and local reality. Um, but I think this stylistic feature is very suitable for his subjects. In other words, the uncanny cleanness of his language matches the clean uncanniness of his stories. So um, you can you can you can see that in his novels, he often likes to write about people who are contented with this state of rootlessness or the modern rootlessness, this urban isolation. So, uh, but of course, the, the the lack of the texture of social life might look very empty and not so cool in lesser writers' hands. Um, but um, as other scholars have pointed out, the um, the, the Murakami style, this consummate, not belonging, this modern ruthlessness, um, can be potent and alluring to readers. I'm just considering that you know many readers are like uh, his characters; they can easily relate to them. Uh, so this relating to the world in the novel, this lack of particular localized details, these can be used as our reference points while we consider writers who stand on the opposite side of what literature along the spectrum of translatability, the linguistic or cultural translatability. Um, so um, I, I, in my book, I discussed some of the stylistic features of the novels. I didn't say this is really the reason, that is really the reason, but I want you to read, or if you cannot read Chinese, unfortunately, you have to rely on me to tell you these untranslated novels and how intricate, how complex, how different they are. But these are the features that I believe might have caused the difficulty of his wording. Uh, one thing is, uh, you can, you might, you might say, oh, he is an elitist when he tries to mix two kind of, you know, highbrow uh, genres. One is the traditional Chinese uh, the other is the West modernist and visual art. So these are his literary sources. Uh, again, elitist, highbrow. So if you mix these two, uh, of course, the, the, it, 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 it's very hard to appeal to popular readers. But why? But why do we have to place his work in world literature uh, using the popularity as a standard? We don't have to, right? Um, so, uh, okay. I, I want to also just say uh, briefly about, you know, the some of the features. One is he likes to situate individual characters in this 
constantly shifting web of interpersonal relationship. Uh, he also uses this noticing, again, seeing, visualizing, this noticing of the details, which tells you that this character can only see this part, can only have this limited or partial view of the whole situation. But because of this mobility of the perspective, and also because he uses his hand almost like a rolling camera, right, constantly moving from one to the other, and constantly uh, moving one episode, one scene to the next, so you can you don't feel bored. Uh, you also can piece together these fragments and create your own story in a certain way. Um, and uh, people who are not familiar with uh, might not immediately recognize that he is really kind of learned from uh, this uh, integration, again, of the inside and outside uh, in, in, in giving you this person's kind of inner thoughts, the inner activities. So these might be lost. Um, this is what I'm afraid. These might be lost in translation, even um, these are translated. My, my point is that uh, they, most of, actually right now, not most of, many of his novels have been translated, but it doesn't mean that people can receive them well. Uh, the fact is they're, they're very badly received, not because of the translation quality. They're all fluently translated, but some of the things probably are, or I, I would say uh, his novels are hardwired against translatability or, you know, the easy consumption. So this is one point that I made, uh, that he's very dense, uh, the detail-rich novels uh, resists easy consumption. Uh, but because, and also because he's laying out this complexity, uh, he, you can say that he's very impartial in treating the bad and the good. Very interesting that you cannot really use his novels to make your own point. It cannot be easily uh, used by politicians or by, by people with ideologies. So, yeah, it's, it's there. It's almost like as heavy as, as a stone. And stone, ugly stone, is actually his moniker. And I went to his apartment. I see all these different statues and jades. They are all heavy, like stones. So there is this gravity, this density about his novels, too. And uh, I don't know if this is a good metaphor or not, but uh, it just slows down or burdens upon the mobility of his novel. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I just wanted to to add that there's definitely this sense of heaviness um, that I I also got from uh, from from reading his his work, and um, I was actually wondering about it whether you know it it came from it had a story right behind it or um, you know 
what what its role was. So, you know, in reading uh, the chapter in your book, uh, it became a bit more clear in a way, um, and also what details uh, do. But I, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, no, not what, yeah, the po- one point I want to make is that maybe this, uh, the last chapter is not just about him, it's about probably Xi Jie Xiaoshuo in general. There, you know, I talked about his heaviness, and yeah, you're right. There is this kind of almost like, um, um, like a stone like quality. But on the other hand, he, he can be very, you know, lyrical. If you read his early essay, like, Fiction or fiction-like essays again, right? like prose in his early years about you know local, uh, regional uh, particularities. Those are very accessible and totally lyrical. But as he got older, I mean, this is what he told me. We talked about late style, and he because I told him I wrote an article about Eileen Chan's late style, and he. Probably I'm, you know, there's also something late about my work. And I think he, he he's right. If you read uh, Shenben, that is a novel that has not been published, and compare that long novel um, about uh, Qingling, right, that uh, very regional, um, I mean, the, with a, a regional character, you read that side by side with his early uh, essays or again essay like fiction about that area that region you can see this stark difference between the two uh, and the, the the way he looks at his hometown region uh, changed and he becomes more angry almost but but you know it's of course his language is not angry but you can see how how dark the picture is um, violent really that that novel is about uh, the violence that happens to everyone um, yeah so yeah it, it's also um, you know quite um, quite fascinating to to see these differences over the you know the years over the decades of, of an author uh, writing right I think yeah he also uh, hmm? He also mentioned, uh, you know, his attraction to ink wash painting, and he likes theater. We all know, you know, Qingqiang is the Chinese title of his novel, the Shanxi Opera. Uh, so his aesthetic ideal is really this juxtaposition of the, this polyphonic yet unifying space of theater, and this diffusive perspective of English painting. So if you have these two uh, forms in your mind, maybe it will help you to read some of his novels because you can also see this polyphonic uh, quality there, this diffusive perspective there. So it moves. So again, his, his, his hand is like a camera moves from one person's perspective to another. And he also is very good at really uh, marshalling this large group of people in a very violent scene, something really bursting out. And I was really kind of touched by some of the some of the violent scenes. And I asked him, why did you write about those? And how 
and why the hell did you write it so well? And he said, I mean, his simple answer is that he had witnessed all, all, all of the violence in his youth, and it really seared into his memory. And I don't know how he writes it, but he's really good at uh, both giving you this almost tangible, sensual force of violence and also uh, having this control over the situation. So even though, what I mean is that even though violence scenes itself are chaotic, right? It goes everywhere. However, in art form, the author has to have a control over the those chaotic scenes. And he's very, uh, he's, he's very talented at doing that. And uh, yeah, this is um, what I really admire him. And can I say one thing? <laughs> I'm sorry. So you know that novel, uh, A Poe Flower, that novel has been criticized by lots of people. They say that he is a Chang man uh, who is so insensitive, who is so kind of out of, you know, just doesn't understand what's going on. Um, it's, it's a very complicated case. And I don't even think that novel is his best novel, it's a masterpiece. But if you go to several of the scenes uh, where he describes the violence, uh, including a raping scene, it's really kind of just just stunned me. I thought this guy knows really how to write about violence. And I mean, what is so good about it? Uh, I mean, there's nothing good about violence itself, but by making violence so vivid, uh, so painful, right? He really pours himself, pours his imagination and understanding, and uh, you know his own. I think his own experience about violence uh, into this the, into this fictional scene. He really makes you look at something that you know people want to avoid. I think this that's his power. Um, I was really um, very much touched. And people don't read his details. They don't understand well where his power really um, lies. And that's a pity. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. And um, I would also add that it is, um, it is a type of, of slow reading that would open up these details and open up the world uh, that authors like uh, uh, Jia Pinghua would, would describe and are so knowledgeable about um, that maybe it's not readily accessible. Um, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning of our interview, um, maybe, you know, some audiences were, would prefer the, the page turners um, as opposed to maybe, um, you know, working through uh, personal trauma while reading uh, a piece so intricately designed. Um, but again, that's, I, I digress. That was just, a, you know, a side, a side comment. Um, but I did want to bring us to the afterward and to uh, the fact that it brings us back to the CGSL show as a concept. And uh, you describe its function and importance beautifully by giving us the opportunity to think about the immense value of slow reading and paying attention to the object in front of our eyes in order to access other cultural and historical realms. So 
So the last phrase on page 199 stuck with me and it, it quotes the novel of details or Cixie Xiaoshuo has become the poetry of Chinese modernity. End of quote. And I wanted to invite you to say a bit more um, about this, um, if possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your question really makes me um, wonder. You know, sometimes I write because I feel, feel it. I didn't maybe, I mean, to say this is kind of doesn't make sense, right? You're writing a book. How can you say that you're not thinking? But sometimes the words just come out of it. But then I come back and I, I have to think about this. I, I, I would say that um, I, I think I, I talked about this in my afterward. That is, um, I, I want to direct you to that part. Maybe that can somehow answer this question. That is, the relationship between fiction and history, and in this case, between Xiaoshuo and history. The novel might not give us history per se. Um, my argument is that it might allow us to see what is hidden, what is lurking in the shadow of history. What I mean is that uh, whereas people's feelings and reveries, as well as some of the most ephemeral manifestations of life, uh, our gestures, tones, uh, a person's airs, uh, a the light and shadow of a place, what you see, can be too elusive, too fluid, too, you know, it just goes so fast to be recorded by historians. Uh, But literature and art seem to me to be better equipped to grapple with these, um, you know, these ephemeral experiences. So, Poetry also has, you know, played this role to capture something that is fleeting, right? And Xijie um, Xiaoshu are very good at this precisely because of the details. The details are traces of life, that's the words I use, blueprints of memory. They have been used by writers to capture, um, you know, what and someone calls the lasting luminosity. You know, these are paradoxes. How can light lasting and last? And Proust also has a similar scene, uh, the fixed mobility. So these are paradoxes that the Xijie Xiaoshuo try to capture using the details. And I see this impulse to capture the um, the the the, the, the ephemeral as a poetic impulse. So perhaps um, this made me write that phrase. Um, so, uh, but I, th- I think it's also, you know, ephemeral is it's kind of very much about the aesthetic, right? But about beauty. But there is also the pain, uh, the, the painful part of our uh, memory. Um, and I think many of the fiction writers of Xijie Xiaoshuo want to be so detailed because they want to rekindle the light of memory, to recapture the past, or to reprocess, I shouldn't reprocess, processing uh, the pain, the trauma. Um, um, So 
of course, um, I I would say, you know, uh, it is is to bring our consciousness with the world, but not through really storytelling, um, it, or we can say it's a particular storytelling, uh, but by paying attention to to time, to life, the texture of life. And it, it allows us to, to, to discern this fine print or the fine grain of history. And I see this universalism as, you know, the, the, the source of the poetry of um, and, and again, back to the question about history and fiction, uh, the latter fiction responds to the former. Um, I in the book I suggest that there is a close relationship between Xijie Xiaoshuo and modernization, and uh, I I even kind of blow up this connection on a global scale uh, in the afterworld uh, afterward uh, because I read uh, again I'm not a historian not an anthropologist or even you know, I didn't. I have never taken any art history classes, but I read a lot uh, about. You know, you know. At the same time, when the detail-driven prose narrative rose in China, we had the Xiaoshuo. There, on the other side of the world, there was also a trend towards this mimesis in Italian paintings. In the, you know, during the 16th century that also intensely focuses on the so-called truth of the detail. So even if if we study Golden Age Dutch painting, um, we, we can talk about details, we cannot probably really say that there is a verifiable evidence about this China-European uh, mutual influence. Some people already wrote about this, but it's questionable. Still, we can say that these simultaneous upsurges of the interest in, and this is important, in the micro, uh, in, the, in the humble, and in the profoundity of the humble and the micro across such a vast you know, cultural and geographical space and across genres, there, there must be something there um, and to me, it is very intriguing that we could um, think that certain formal resonance between the Chinese and the Western Mimesis came from the same fascination with the visual surfaces, uh, the same desire to probe uh, what lies beneath the depth. And also, this coincid- I feel like this is a coincidental discovery of memory uh, not as a static body of knowledge, but as a sensory-related, sensory-enabled living experience. I think this you can see this both in China and in the West, uh, the ideas about memory change. So I think these are all affecting um, how, you know, how, how details are, are used or are discovered, I think. Um, but modernization also brings about commercialism, about the destruction of tradition, 
about uh, the, the, you know, almost the traumatic kind of um, uh, ruins of a certain way of life. So um, we see this in 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 Chijie Shoshua. Right. So that's why I write that sentence. <laughs> it's um, it, yeah, it truly uh, stuck with me, and I think it's um, it's a very um beautiful for the lack of a better word way of, of summing uh, summing up the the chapters and part two um, and but you know uh, we we have taken a lot of your time so as a last question I hope to hear a bit about your current projects uh, what you're working on right now or you know projects you you wish to to start uh, yeah uh, I think I need to finish some you know, half done works, like small projects. Um, but um, my goal is to write a book about, I wouldn't call it details in cinema, but, you know, because I told you that uh, details really fascinate me and I don't think I've um, exhausted the full meaning and of details. And really, I, I feel like details are the con- the connecting tissues to the past and I want to find out how they connect things, how they connect our life with art, with others um, with the past and um, so there is still some something that I want to find out um, about and I don't but I don't want to um, just use this Again, the gen- I feel like details in cinema is very different from details in Chinese fiction because um, you know cinema is a different medium, and the Chinese cinema. I don't want to limit my uh, discussion about details in cinema to only Chinese films. So I really need to think hard and find a particular kind of angle to approach. The same concerns, and you know, to satisfy to satisfy my curiosity about this really fascinating topic. Thank you for asking me that question. I wish I could tell you more, but I'm still kind of you know exploring that you know subject. Sure. Well, you know, whenever it comes out, uh, I'm very much looking forward to reading it. And, you know, we, we hope to have you back here at New Books Network. And, um, you know, I will I'll thank you very much for being uh, with us today and um, looking forward for, to more work. Thank you so much, Victoria. Thank you. It's great.